Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Facebook. Today is Tuesday, June 30th. Lululemon stock is up, TikTok is down in India, and we're focused on how a popular app pivoted from an alt-right haven to an organizing tool for Black Lives Matter. Earlier today, a text and video chat app called Discord announced that it's raised $100 million in new venture capital funding at a valuation of $3.5 billion. It's the sort of thing that could have barely been imagined a few years ago when Discord was used by white supremacists to organize their infamous Tiki Torch rally in Charlottesville. Overnight, Discord went from an under-the-radar community for gamers into a tech pariah. That event, though, was seminal for Discord, and in the years since, the platform has worked to rehabilitate its image, including creating a safety and trust team. It also began kicking off some alt-right users long before companies like Reddit, which uh, started yesterday. Fast forward, and Discord has gone mainstream. It's got around 100 million active users each month, including organizers of Black Lives Matter protests. And it's also become popular among classroom teachers as an alternative to Zoom or Google, all of which leads back to that $3.5 billion valuation and where Discord sits within the social media landscape. Now, there is still plenty of questionable content on there, despite its policing efforts and some users migrating to more, quote, free speech chat apps like Telegram and the Twitter knockoff Parler. In 15 seconds, we'll talk with Discord co-founder and CEO Jason Citron about his company's pivot, its present, and what comes next. But first, this. We're joined now by Discord co-founder and CEO Jason Citron. So, Jason, what was your early vision for Discord? Was it as simple as you guys basically wanted to build a way for gamers to talk to one another? Our original vision for Discord was exactly that. We play a ton of video games ourselves and realized that there was an opportunity to build a better way to talk before, during, and after playing games with our friends. So Jason, let's fast forward a bit. And post Charlottesville, was there an internal debate, kind of a push-pull between being a free speech Wild West and wanting to moderate content within the platform? Back in 2015, there were pretty much two big categories of apps that people were using when they played games together. One of them was kind of like Skype and sort of some apps similar to Skype. And another one was a category that was kind of similar to like TeamSpeak or Mumble, which most people are probably not familiar with. What we ended up essentially doing is we looked at the way that people who play games with their friends, either in a guild or playing something like League of Legends, which is more of a five-person team, how they actually spend time talking. And we took the best of TeamSpeak and the best of Skype with modern design principles and made software that people really loved. Jason, let's fast forward a little bit. And, you know, post Charlottesville, when it comes out, the discord was kind of how a lot of those folks organized themselves. Was there an internal debate over really what to do in the sense of this kind of push pull between being kind of a free speech wild west and wanting to moderate content within the platform? Or was that not a major debate? Was it simply we want to moderate now we have to figure out how to do it? We definitely debated sort of where you draw the line between privacy and safety. Like we knew that we were not going to be the Wild West for free speech. And that was never our intention. When we think about playing games and spending time with your friends talking, like we have more of a sort of a wholesome, positive view on what we want people doing on the service. But at the end of the day, we want to make sure people feel like they have privacy and have a space that is comfortable for them to have genuine conversations with their friends. And so we spent a lot of time thinking through in a short window, how to approach privacy versus safety and where to draw those lines. And ultimately, we made a call that resulted in us booting off a number of alt-right groups and servers a couple of years ago. 
as a piece of that, you know, you say you want to maintain privacy, but you decide to do this discord for those who don't use it. You don't need to use your real name, your real identity. In fact, you can just be a couple numbers essentially as a username. Why the decision to maintain that as opposed to, as you say, people talk with their friends. Why not make us use our real names, which might make users at least a little bit more circumspect about what they post? It's important to note that discord is not anonymous. And when you create an account, you choose a username and that's who you are for the duration of using the service. And it's important to us that you can choose who you want to be and how you express yourself when you're talking to your friends in these communities. Like there's some communities, for example, you know, especially folks that are in kind of marginalized groups that use Discord to find belonging and camaraderie. And it's really important for those people that they don't have to be themselves, for example. It is anonymous though, right? I know you say you get to choose who you are, but that doesn't actually necessarily get to your actual name, your job, who you really are. You could live a different life on Discord than you actually live, I guess is the best way to put it. I think what's important is that there is accountability. Being anonymous implies that there's no accountability. On Discord, there is accountability. If you do something or say something in a space and the people there don't appreciate it, you can get banned or removed from that group. Every group has the ability to decide who can join. All of the groups are invite only, in fact, unless you decide to let sort of leave the door open. And then once you join a server, which is what we call our communities, the moderators have the ability to kick and ban people. And it's important to keep in mind that the majority of servers on Discord, in fact, more than 80% of them are invite only spaces where the people generally know each other of less than 200. That's been some of the commentary today in the following you guys announcing the funding round that the invite only piece, kind of like the I am 18 plus for certain types of content is relatively easy for sophisticated users to get around. Is that a fair charge? And do you plan to change those things? It's not possible to get around the invite only nature of a server. If you set up a discord for you and your 10 friends, it's impossible for someone to join it unless you invite them. Let me ask about the kind of the 18 plus. Am I wrong in saying if I am 17 years old and I want to access a certain kind of content and a button pops up that says, are you 18? I'm always going to hit yes, right? Um, I mean, you have to enter your age, and if you are underage, you will get kicked off the platform. But how do you know that? Because you don't know who the person really is, and you don't ask for the birth date. How will I get kicked off? We do ask for your birthday. Let me rephrase. I can lie about my birthday because you don't know who I actually am. How would you ever find out? Well, if you lie about your birthday, then, you know, you lied about your birthday. At some level, like, if someone wants to go and search the internet, and this is true of any platform that you might find, you can sort of find your way to content that someone may not like. But I think what's important to keep in mind here is that on Discord, we have very clear community guidelines. And if servers violate those guidelines and get reported to us, or we detect that they're violating those guidelines, we do shut them down. When you think of what you've done in the last couple of years, kind of post Charlottesville, are there interpretations maybe of liability or regulations that you would offer kind of other social media platforms that are trying to navigate content moderation on their own platforms? That's a big question. It is. <laughs> It's hard for me to give advice to other platforms. Let me rephrase then. Is there a big lesson or kind of a learning that you guys had when you embarked on kind of starting moderation that folks in your position at other companies might want to hear or might be instructive for? I mean, honestly, we just did ultimately what we thought was right. And, you know, we spent some time to think about the kind of world that we want to create and how we want our work to influence the world. And at the end of the day, we want to create something that makes the world a better place that gives people the power to create belonging and real human connection in their lives. And that meant making sure that people felt comfortable and that it wasn't used for evil. And so very early on, we took a very hard stance against things like extremism and hate speech, have not waffled on that at all. Final question for you, which is a financing one. You guys announced this $100 million in new money today, $3.5 billion valuation. Is it your goal to bring Discord public? It's my goal to make sure that Discord is an enduring business and that we're here for many years to come. Whether that means we go public or not, I can't comment on at this time. 
But I think that it's clear that people really want to have a new kind of communication service they can use that gives them the sense of being together with their friends no matter where they are. And that's what we wake up every day to bring to life. Let me rephrase that a little bit then. Is it your full intention to make sure Discord always remains independent in the minds of the fact that, as you say, that this community kind of relies on you? Do you need to make sure that Discord, whether it's a public company or somehow you buy it back or it continues to be venture funded forever, remains independent and not owned by somebody else? It's definitely one of our top considerations, yes. Fair enough. Jason Citron of Discord, thank you very much for joining us. All right, Dan, thanks for having me. Welcome back. What we're watching today is the number 134 billion. That's the amount of dollars left in the Federal Small Business Loan Program, known as PPP, which stops taking applications in just a few hours. Three things to know. First, critics of the program argue that this extra cash reflects that PPP didn't work as well as it could have, or at least as well as it should have. Specifically, they note that certain entrepreneurs got shut out of the program at the beginning when money was at a premium and now aren't asking for loans basically because they've gone out of business. Critics also point out that some big banks like Wells Fargo stopped taking PPP applications weeks ago, namely because they were no longer making enough money off the loans to make it worth their while. Two, the U.S. Treasury Department doesn't see things that way. A source tells me that Treasury and the Small Business Administration did initial math on small business payrolls and thought the most that would be needed would be around $600 billion, and that's if every single small business applied for and qualified for the program. The fact that about $520 billion got dispersed, again, out of $600 billion, in Treasury's mind, is a reflection that most everyone who needed it got it. Three, expect that extra money to get repurposed into things like restaurant rescue funds, based on congressional testimony earlier today from Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. Oh, and speaking of congressional testimony, today we also heard from Dr. Anthony Fauci, who told the Senate that he would not be surprised if the U.S. soon has 100,000 new coronavirus cases per day. Now, that obviously sounds like an incredibly high number, but at our current pace, we could actually hit it by mid-July. And finally today, we're also watching venture capital inequality. During an Axios Live virtual event, Bessemer Venture Partners' Elliot Robinson said this about how not all job opportunities are created equal. Diversity theater kind of lived it where for both black and brown investors as well as female investors, we've done this thing where we will give you a quote unquote investing role, but we won't let you touch things like carry real check writing, sitting on boards and the like. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national social media day, which is kind of on the nose for this episode. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios recap.